right, Genesis 21. Now, in John chapter 5, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day. And uh, for his efforts, he was persecuted um, by the Jews. And uh, I bring up this uh, verse, Matthew, uh, John 17, or rather, I'm sorry, John chapter 5, we're in John chapter 5 I'm talking about right now. I bring up this verse for a reason. John 5, verse 17, Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. They're working on the Sabbath day. <laughs> he uses that word. I quoted that verse because I want you to know that some people, while some people appreciate the Lord's work, the guy who was healed, others oppose God's work, in this case the Jews who persecuted Jesus, they're in opposition to his work, and some even go so far as to mock the work of God and ridicule that work. Now, God's always been at work carrying out his will. That's the same as what was true in the Old Testament of God working. It's true in the New Testament. It's still true today. We're in Genesis 21 today where we're going to see God at work as well. He's at work establishing the messianic line through a promised son. Now, in Genesis 21, we're going to find God at work in three different ways. First of all, through the fulfillment of his promise. Through the fulfillment of his promise, that's the first eight verses. And we're going to find, go back to chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. We're going to find that the Lord does have a say-so in the birth of children. Genesis 20, verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. You remember the story of Abimelech and Abraham back in chapter 20? God healed his wife, his maid, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So God is able to prevent the womb from bearing children. He's also able to open the womb in order to bear children. In Genesis 21, he opens a womb, long closed, that of Sarah, and now she has this baby. Finally, she has this baby. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I have been waiting for this to happen since Genesis 12. I mean, I was, I was caught up in this as if the, it was happening right now. Look at verse 1, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord... Of chapter 21, the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. The Lord took note of Sarah and she bore a child. That's a, there's a personal touch here. To take note of someone means to visit them. God visits people, a person in the Old Testament, or he visits people in the Old Testament for various reasons, sometimes for judgment. Because he's judging them, that's a, you don't want God visiting you for judgment, for judgment on sin. Sometimes he's blessing people uh, because he, he visits them to bless them, like maybe helping Israel out of uh, their slavery out of Egypt, that kind of thing. The Lord can judge Amalekites to destroy them. He can save Israel from uh, the slavery there in Egypt, all kinds of reasons. But God's visitation shows he has a special interest in a certain person, in a certain group of people in a certain situation. He has a special interest, and that always means, always has to do with the destiny of his people. Here he visits Sarah, chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2, so she can have the promised child. Now, the emphasis in the first seven verses is the Lord himself. The Lord is the one who gives Abraham and Sarah his child. It's his doing, and this, that has fulfilled his promises that he's been making for really for 25 years. Think about that. He's been promising this some form or fashion. Notice how it's stated in verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he said, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2 
talks about that they had the child at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And so uh, three statements made to the effect that what God is doing right now, fulfilling this, he's been promising all along. He's fulfilled his promises. Now, when God called Abraham, you know, originally in chapter 12 of Genesis, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, that means children. Children come before nations. That right at the beginning of Abraham's relationship to the Lord, he's promised this. And then in Genesis 12, 7, the Lord says, to your descendants, I'll give this land. Your descendants. Again, the promise of children. Genesis 13, 15. I will give the land of Canaan to you and your descendants forever. Verse 16, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. I'm telling you all these verses because I want you to see. He's been promising this again and again. Then he goes from the general to the specific. Genesis 15, 4. The Lord says to Abraham, one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Genesis 17, 16. Indeed, I will give you a son by Sarah. Verse 19, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. Genesis 18, 8. At this time next year, Sarah will have a son. He says it twice there. Again and again, over 25 years, the Lord has made this promise. And now he has fulfilled the promise. And Moses, the writer of Genesis, is very anxious for us to know that he's done that. And so three times he stresses the fact that, yes, the Lord has fulfilled his promise. Just as the Lord said, just as the Lord said, just as the Lord said, and then it was accomplished. And I'm, what I'm telling you here tonight is that that Bible you hold in your hands is a sure thing. It's a definite thing. It's, it's sure and it's steadfast. Whatever the Lord has promised in his word, and get this statement, whatever the Lord has promised in his word, he will bring to pass. Not some of promise you imagine in your mind. I'm saying whatever he says in his word, he's going to bring to pass. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law, from the Old Testament, until all is accomplished. All of it is going to be accomplished, fulfilled. As the hymn states, it's even, it's even uh, saying it tonight, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith, where? In his excellent word. Firm foundation. Verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore a son. Now, Hebrews 11, 11 comments on that. And it says, and, and, and you have your, uh, in your notes there, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life. We've been talking about this. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, she had her doubts. <laughs> she did over the time. We've seen this. She had her doubts that this would ever happen. And, uh, but when all is said and done, we learn, we actually learn Sarah is a woman of faith. That's what she is. When it's all is said and done, yes, she wrestled with doubt. She caved into her doubts at times. But what characterizes her life, what we can say about her in the final analysis is this. Sarah was a woman of faith, a woman who trusted God. Hebrews 11, 11, those are some, aren't those tremendous words? She considered him faithful who had promised. Great is thy faithfulness. Those words are worth memorizing, worth meditating on, she considered him faithful who had promised. I would suggest all of us think about that a lot. The same is true of Abraham. He participated in some doubtful detours along the way as well in the last several chapters. But listen to another great statement of faith in Romans chapter 4, Romans 4, 18 to 21. And hope against hope, this is against all hope, Abraham believed. 
so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which, is, which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be, that's from Genesis, without becoming weak in faith. He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet, here's a great phrase, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And furthermore, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. What God had promised, he was able also to perform. So on the one hand, Abraham realized, wow, if this is going to happen, it's going to take a miracle. Now, that's, just, that's just reality. But on the other hand, he realized that God could pull that miracle off. It's going to be, this is the situation I'm in is impossible, but, but I do know that God can do this with respect to the promise of God he did not waver unbelief. In other words, he believed God's promise. And, and his faith grows stronger. And he gives glory to God because here's the thing. When we believe what God says, we give glory to him. We, we talk about, we're always talking about glorifying God in this church. I'm not sure how much glorifying God is always taking place. I hope a lot. But here's one way to glorify God. When we believe what he says, we give him glory. In fact, Abraham was fully assured. These are such strong terms fully assured that God could carry out his promise. So according to Romans chapter 4, Abraham had great faith in God. I do think this church glorify God, glorifies God in many ways. People are going to want to go, sorry, Mark said that the church doesn't glorify God. I don't think that's the case. I think the church that God is glorified in many ways, however, not always is, is, is the case here. But back to the conception, Hebrews 11, 11. Sarah received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. The child... Sarah Board was a miracle, miracle child. Supernatural birth since the Lord is the one who brought it about by his power. The Lord enabled Sarah to conceive. That's not even possible at the age of 90. In fact, that's impossible. And yet it happened. And Abraham, at the age of 100, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, I was wondering, I got to thinking about this, and I thought to myself, I wonder in modern times, who is the oldest woman on record who was born a child? At what age? And I looked it up. <laughs> it's a lady from India. She had, a, uh, she had twins in 2019. You'll, you'll love her name, Mangayama Yaramati. I want you to memorize that name. Come back next week with that fully memorized. She bore twins at the, at the tender age of 74. Age of 74. Uh, now, she's the oldest woman on record to have a baby outside of the Bible, but she had medical help, you have to understand. She received treatments, extensive treatments involving a donor. But Sarah, at the age of 90, no help except for the help of God. She has a baby. This is nothing but the unique work of God. Absolutely amazing. Now, verse 2 tells us this birth was at a time in which God had spoken. Point in time, God made them wait about 25 years until the baby was born. Why did he do this? I think the main reason is because God was most glorified in this situation by doing this. I think that no one at this point, I know no one at this point could attribute this to a natural cause. Who could say this was natural? Nobody could. They can only say one thing. God must have done this. This is incredible. Now, that's something we need to think about because... You know, we talk about prayer. We wonder why, you know, we, when we want our prayers answered, we want them answered now. Lord, we have, we have needs here. Can't you see we have needs here? 
And we need them answered quickly. Our prayers need to be answered quickly. But consider this. It may, be, it may bring God greater glory to postpone those answers to prayer at times because it may make him more exalted with the, with the way things go in our life, our circumstances. And prayer, by the way, is really submitting our will to him, not demanding that he do what we want all the time. Even after the birth of uh, the baby, Abraham shows his faith by his actions. Look at verse 3. Uh, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. That's, he names the promised child Isaac. By the way, Isaac means he laughs. That's very important to this whole section here. He laughs. Why did he name him Isaac? Well, the Lord told him to. Back in Genesis 17, 19, he said, The Lord said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. Abraham does as God requests. And then verse 4. Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Again, the Lord doing exactly what the Lord, uh, Abraham doing exactly what the Lord had said back in Genesis 17. God had said, hey, all males are to be circumcised at, the, at eight days, and, uh, and he does. And so the Lord wants us to understand that Isaac is a God-promised child with a God-given name who is circumcised by God's command. All of this has to do with God. This whole section does. This is a very special child from God's perspective. Look at verse 5. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And verse 6, Sarah makes a play on, on the name Isaac, which is going to happen several times here. Uh, now in Genesis 17, 17, Abraham, you have to go back a little bit. Because she says, God has made laughter for, for me here. You have to go back to chapter 17, verse 17. Abraham, in a moment of doubt, had laughed about the possibility of having a child at the age of 100. He laughed. Remember that? And in 1812, Sarah herself had laughed about the possibility of bearing a child at the age of 90. Both times that the, the word for laughter in the Hebrew is Isaac or some form of it. So there's been some doubt. But now, in full assurance of faith, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. He has made, you could say, he's made Isaac for me. Everyone who hears me will Isaac with me. They're, they're going to laugh with me. This is the laughter of faith. People who exercise faith in God are able to laugh, able to rejoice at the great things God has done. These people believe God. They believe his word. So why would we ever doubt? We always doubt. Why, would we, why, why do we doubt? Verse 7, Sarah says, who, could have, who would have said that you know, I'd be nursing children right now. Who could have imagined such a possibility? But as the Lord had, to had told them back in Genesis 18, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? You know, we read these verses too, don't we? In the, in the New Testament, it's fact. When we read it and go on our way, and then the next day we don't trust God. Why do we do this? And let me remind you that God is still in the faith business. Now, I know we're not supposed to talk about faith because it's been hijacked by the Word of Faith movement and other people. And I noticed Christians have, begun, have shied away from the idea of faith. Oh, we don't, we don't, really, we really, have, we don't really believe God in prayer. All the Gospels believe me in prayer, and I'll answer your prayer. And all. We don't believe all, That's not how it really works, and we don't have faith in God. We don't really do that. And I've had people tell me that kind of stuff. I'm like, wait a minute. Why does it say it? Don't do that. Don't give up faith because some movement is, that movement has twisted the concept of biblical faith, by the way. I don't get my theology of faith from that movement. I get it from the Bible. So 
Guess what? In the 21st century, we still need to exercise faith in God. You know, I always think of George Mueller. I tell you, I talk about him a lot, but you read his life. It was just one act, one act of faith in God after another, constantly. It's still true today. We can have full confidence that what the Lord says he will do, he will do. I'm talking about what the scriptures say now, not something you imagine or come up with or a dream you had or whatever. Please don't have any dreams. Take up the shield of faith, which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the wicked one. Take that shield up and don't put it down. Faith in God, faith in his word. Look at verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the, on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, children at that time were usually weaned at the age of two or three. Uh, and, as, you know, if they, you know the, the rate of uh, mortality was high. And if they reached that age, they were probably, probably going to continue to live on. It was a great thing that they were living on. And there's great cause for celebration. And there's a special cause for a celebration in this birth. Because this is the Lord's special work by bringing Isaac into the world. It couldn't have happened any other way. And so we see that God, through the fulfillment of his promise, is at work. Secondly, God is at work through the confirmation of his choice. Through the confirmation of his choice in verses 9 to 13. Look at verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Now we're, we're, we're set up at this point to show a great contrast between Isaac and Ishmael. Verse 9 mentions Hagar, the Egyptian. You remember her? If you, if you recall, back in Genesis 16, she was Sarah's maid. Sarah decided that, hey, since I'm not having a child, uh, Abraham and, and Hagar can have a child, and uh, that'll be the child. And they did. He was given the name Ishmael. That, by the way, that plan was fully concocted in Sarah's brain, and Abraham approved of it. The Lord didn't say, hey, by the way, since my plan apparently is not working out, why don't you, Abraham, take up Hagar, and maybe we can have, she's gonna, she can fulfill my original plan, except Sarah's obviously not getting, that's not happening, so, no, none of that happened, God didn't plan this, Abraham and Sarah used Hagar to accomplish their own plan, to bring the promised one into the world, only this is not the promised son at all, Ishmael, but as kids do, Ishmael grows up, chapter 21, when Isaac is weaned, he's approximately 17 years old. Don't think that Isaac, and we tend to think Ishmael's a little baby here. He's not. He's 17 years old, approximately. He's a teenager. When, at the time when Ishmael is weaned, he's 14 years older than Ishmael, if he's 17. He could be 16, but probably 17. So for two to three years, guess who's been getting all the attention? It's Isaac. Isaac's got it all, all the attention, not Ishmael. Can you, can you hear him now? Oh, how, look how cute baby Isaac is. You know how we do with babies. But more than that, oh, Isaac is the promised one. He's the one God has promised. He's the one God chose. He's the one God's going to use. It's all about Isaac, not Ishmael. And I would imagine Ishmael by this time is jealous. I'm sure he is jealous. He's not thrilled like everybody else is about his little half-brother. He he's probably angry with him. I know he is. In fact, he's so unhappy. In verse 9, he's mocking, it says. Who's he mocking? It just says he's mocking. Well, the context is clear that he's mocking Isaac. The verb mocking is another form of Isaac's name. It's an intensive form of Isaac's name. It has to do with laughter. Here we go again with this word. But not the laughter of joy we saw in verse 6 at the birth of Isaac. Um, one writer said it's used in a malicious sense here based on the context and based on Paul's use of it in Galatians 4.29. Do 
You know, you can laugh with someone in a good sense, laugh together, or you can laugh at someone in a mocking sense, in a bad sense. Now, that word mocking can have different shades of meaning, but really here it means to make fun of. Isaac, Ishmael, rather, was making fun of Isaac. One Old Testament scholar says, he translates it this way, he, should, he said the verse should be translated, Ishmael was always mocking. He was always mocking Isaac. He points to the Hebrew grammar to, get, to come up with that. I'm inclined to follow his line of thinking. If that's the case, this is not a one-time deal. In fact, the Apostle Paul lets us know that this is not just an innocent jab at Isaac. So if you went to Galatians 4.29, it's, it's in your pages, in your page, Galatians 4.29, Paul says, he refers back to this incident in Genesis, and he says, the one who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael. Ishmael born according to the flesh, had nothing to do with God's supernatural work. The one born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted, see the word persecuted? Persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac. Paul says Ishmael persecuted Isaac, or we could say he harassed him. Uh, I, I looked that up. The, the tense of the Greek there actually is, and I, and I double-checked with Stephen on this. I knew what it was, but I double-checked twice on the thing to make sure of it. Is actually, he was persecuting him, it says. He was harassing him. In fact, the old Lutheran scholar Linsky says, he translates it this way, he kept persecuting him. So it appears from the New Testament, it's an ongoing action. Ongoing harassment from Isaac, not a one-time thing, but maybe when he came in contact with him, maybe when he saw him, uh, he would mock him, make fun of him. As, probably mocking him as the promised one, probably making fun of that in the context here. Needless to say, Sarah had her fill of it. She was tired of it. I don't think it was a one-time deal for that reason, too. One time, and then she gets all bent out of shape. It's possible. I think it's more than once. I think it was, he did this periodically, at least. Sarah's tired of it. Look at verse 10. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son. For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The phrase drive out, very harsh term. Sarah is not saying, you know, she's not saying, well, things aren't working out so good. Maybe you should, you know, find another place to live. Uh, you know, that, would, that might be helpful. She didn't say that. She says, get out of here and don't come back. I'm done with you. It's very harsh, very strong language. In fact, the phrase drive out is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe divorcees. In fact, she's saying, it's something like she's saying, I want a divorce. I want a divorce from you. I don't want to see you again. I want you out of here. She perceives Israel as a threat who needs to be eliminated. Now, I think Sarah is very angry here. Some people say she's not angry. I don't know how they can say that. She's, in my opinion, <laughs> common sense. She's very angry. I think it's obvious. I mean, after the birth, if you go back to Genesis 16, after the birth of Ishmael to Hagar, you remember that uh, Sarah got very jealous and very angry. Hagar provoked her. Remember that? And Genesis 16 says Sarah treated her harshly. In fact, it was such harsh treatment that Hagar fled from her presence. She got out of there and left. She was, didn't want anything to do with it. So believe me, there's no love lost between Hagar and Sarah. They don't like each other. Did you notice verse 10, Sarah doesn't even mention Hagar or Ishmael by name? She doesn't even say their name. She says, this maid, her son, the son of this maid, get him out of here. Get her out of my sight. The son of this maid shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She does say the name of her own son. Verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Abraham is greatly grieved over this situation. Put yourself in 
Abraham's place. Think about this now. You're Abraham. You have watched Ishmael grow up. You watched him be born. You watched him take his first steps. You held him in your arms. He's your little baby. Uh, he becomes a toddler. He's you know, a cute toddler and all that. You taught him how to work. You watched him grow up nearly into manhood. Ishmael's Abraham's son. This is my son, not Sarah's son. Ishmael's son, uh, Abraham's son. Abraham has grown to love him over the years. He loves him. He's his son. And now he's got to say goodbye to him. That's the dilemma he's faced with. In fact, the literal rendering in verse 11 is this, where it says the matter distressed Abraham greatly. Literally, it's the word spoken by, the word just spoken by Sarah was very evil in the eyes of Abraham. It's an evil word. What do you, what are you talking about, Sarah? You're dead wrong in this. We can't do this. In fact, it has the connotation of this is unethical to send him away. We can't do this. And I can see why, I can see Abraham arguing the point here. If the Lord had not intervened in verse 12, look at verse 12. God said, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Again, literally, God is saying, do not let it be evil in your sight, Abraham. Don't look upon this as something that's ethically wrong. In fact, it's the will of God. And here's a little verse. By the way, here's a verse for all you ladies to memorize. <laughs> Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. <laughs> I thought about that. Wives often say, my husband doesn't listen to me. Then memorize this verse. And when he doesn't listen to you, read, preach to him the verse. Don't read it to him. Preach to him the verse. You can put it into the discussion that way. I wish you could do that, ladies, for your sake, but unfortunately it only applies to Abraham. The Lord says, look, regarding this matter, Abraham, I want you to take your wife's advice. Listen, do what she says. Send the maid and the boy away. Why? Why, 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 is, why do I have to listen to Sarah's advice? Why is the Lord backing Sarah? Verse 12, a key phrase here. For, or, for or because through Isaac your descendants are going to be named. Through Isaac. Now, it's interesting that Isaac is named in this chapter, I think, about six times. Ishmael, however, never mentioned by name. Not one time. Never mentioned. It's through Isaac Abraham's descendants would be named, not Ishmael. But wait a minute. Isn't Ishmael the oldest son? Doesn't he have the rights to the firstborn? Isn't that how it works? Well, he's the firstborn of Abraham and Hagar, but not the firstborn of Abraham and Sarah. And in God's plan, this is all about Abraham and Sarah bearing a son. And Isaac is their firstborn. Furthermore, it was the husband, the head of the household, not the wife, that should be making major decisions in the family. But here, Sarah is ordering her husband to get this done. And that's what she's doing. She's giving him an order. I want you to get this done, she says. Something else to consider here is that, now Abraham could have thought, may have thought this, well, the last time I listened to took Sarah's advice, the last time I listened to my wife, well, she got us in a mess. That's why we have this mess here, because she's the one that started it. And had I, he not listened to her, think about this, had Abraham not listened to Sarah, there would be no Ishmael at all. So why should he listen to her now? And the reason is, this is because this is what the Lord wants. This is his will. He doesn't want interference at all from Ishmael. So he approves of this plan now, I'm pretty sure Sarah doesn't know, doesn't realize this. I, I think she's just angry, personally. But God confirms this. No, that's my will. That's what I want to happen. This, and, and what she says, this is not, 
this is God's will. Sarah actually is just fortunate to be in line with God's will here. By the way, it's not like Ishmael's a baby. He's 17 years old. Notice how the Lord refers to him in verse 12. He says, uh, don't be distressed because of the lad, he calls him. Verse 17, he calls him a lad again. Verse 18, he calls him a lad again. That word has a range of meanings. I've talked about this word before. Uh, from, uh, any, it can be anything from a baby all the way to a young man of marriageable age, depending on the context. God says Israel is a lad, and in Genesis, this term normally has to do with young men who are on the verge of manhood. And so this is a young man, he's 17. He can take care of himself, Abraham, don't worry. By using this, God is reassuring Abraham. It's going to be okay. Now, all through this section, Isaac is given priority. He's the one given priority. He's singled out. He's the chosen one, not Ishmael. Now, this doesn't fly. This, not, this kind of idea does not fly very well in the American society of today. We, we think, that what, what would they say today if this happened? In our society, <laughs> Mike shaking his head in the back. What would they say today? It's not fair. Why? Because everybody in America is the chosen one, right? Or at least they think they are. I'm the chosen one. They'll have people talk about themselves in, in, in those kind of terms even. Um, and I won't mention anybody at all here, but everybody thinks they're the chosen one in America. In, in America. But that's not, in God's economy, it doesn't work that way all the time. Sometimes it might, but it's true that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, as they say. All have sinned, right? Everybody's sinned. We're all sinner. I'm sure of the glory of God. Uh, the invitation to salvation is extended to everybody. The salvation through Christ, that's extended to everybody. I'm glad it is. Christ died for sinners. So we extend the invitation. Do you want to come to Christ? Then turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith. That's for everybody. And we'd be thrilled if you came to Christ if you don't know him. But the Bible also speaks of God in an, an electing sense. He's a God of election. Mike referred to Titus 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, that those, those people that... Uh, Titus that Paul was writing to, were, uh, they were the chosen of God, it says. Ephesians 1, 4, you know the verse. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Believers are God's chosen people when it comes to salvation. God's an electing God. He chooses. He makes choices. People don't like that. People argue about that all the time. They don't, they don't, they don't want God making the choice. The fact of the matter is, if God had not made a choice to save some out of humanity... How many would be saved? Nobody. People think, well, let me say, I'll decide. No, you're not going to make the right decision if you're a sinner dead in your sins. This isn't based on any good deeds we have done that God's chosen us. It's just based on his wisdom. The truth is the Lord chose to work through the line of Isaac, the line through whom Christ would come. Romans 9, 7 says, through Isaac, your, your descendants will be named. Now, that passage is very important, but they take another message to preach that, as well as the one in Galatians 4. Hebrews 11:8. in Isaac your descendants shall be called again and again. We're, we see this. And so while believers, in God's, uh, are, while believers are God's chosen people to salvation, Israel is God's chosen people in a national sense. Deuteronomy 14:2, and this, is, this happened in the Old Testament, and there's so many verses. For you, are, you, Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Why did God choose Israel? I mean, that answer is hidden in the, counsel, in, the, in the wisdom in the counsel of God. Nobody knows the answer to that. Only God knows. He's an electing God. For that matter, Christ is God's chosen means of salvation. 
Isaiah 42.1, the Lord says of his son, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. And so in Matthew, who do we see in the genealogy of Christ? We see Isaac in that genealogy. So in Genesis tw uh, 21, God confirms his choice. He's already promised that Isaac would be the son of promise, and now he confirms that choice in this chapter. God's at work to bring us about. Now, what about Ishmael? Poor Ishmael. Is he getting, it sounds like he's getting a raw deal from all this. But look at verse 13. He says, don't worry, Abraham, of the son of the maid. I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. He is, God doesn't even call him by name, the son of the maid. God's going to bless him. God's going to bless Ishmael, too. He's going to make him a nation. Uh, in fact, Genesis 17 has said God, uh, Abraham's going to be a, a father of a multitude of nations. And here's one example. He fulfills his promise. To, to, if he fulfills his promise to Abraham concerning Isaac, he's going to fulfill his promise concerning Ishmael also. So God has his confirmation here of his choice. Thirdly, God is at work through the exercise of his pity. Through the exercise of his pity, that's in verses 14 to 21. Look at verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, this is a very sad scene. Very sad. As to why the wealthy Abraham, who has all kinds of wealth and money and everything, gives, provides Hagar with only a skin of water. Skin of water is, they kept water in skins back then. Now it would be like our present day bottle. Why he gives her just a skin of water and some bread, and that's all he gives her, I have no idea. I can only guess Sarah might have had something to do with it. Maybe she said, just give her a minimal provision here. I mean, I don't know what else. It doesn't say that. I can't verify that. It's a possibility. Anyway, you look at it. This is a sad picture. Abraham giving Hagar some provision, committing Ishmael to her care, sending her away. Sarah said, drive out this maid, but... Abraham takes a softer approach, and he sends her away, doesn't drive her out. He's not going to do that. That would be wrong to drive her out anyway. This depressing scene, by the way, could have been avoided altogether. This is, think about this. This is the after effects of a sinful activity. Here we go, down the road some, right? This could have been avoided had Abraham and Sarah not schemed together to try to help God out and come up with that plan they came up with. And now they have this child... The result of all this sorrow. Here's a sorrowful moment as a result. And the sinful schemes we devise will always end in sorrow. It never works out, it never works out like we thought it was. We don't even think ahead about that. I'm just going to get into this thing. We don't call it sin. I'm just going to get into this thing right here and, and do this. And this is going to be wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And we don't think ahead at all. And then it all falls apart. And we wonder what happened. It must be God's fault. And when it's our fault, and what happens as a result? Sorrow. Sorrow. Um, of course, God, in his infinite wisdom, even works through sinful circumstances. Doesn't mean he approves of it, though. So Hagar and her son, they leave, and verse 14 says, she wandered about in the wilderness. That word wandering has the idea of uncertainty, of, of being lost, of, of being without direction. She's wandering around with her son hopelessly in the desert, has no idea where she's going at all. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes, called a boy here, also called a lad. He's still the 17-year-old kid. He's not two years old. He's not eight years old, by the way. 
Then she went down and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Very sad scene. The water runs out, and Hagar sees to, her, sees to it that her son gets the only cover available in the desert there, some desert brush, probably providing very little shade, but it's the best she can find. It's all she can find out there. Her son, apparently her son is fading fast in the desert heat. He's exhausted, and she thinks he's on the verge of death. I imagine she's doing, he's doing very badly, and my guess is she's not doing so great herself. So she sits at some distance away from him, a bow shot away, however far that is, however far that a bow could be shot back in those days. And she doesn't want to see him die. Maybe the distance between us will alleviate some of the suffering. I want to watch this while the boy suffers. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in a tough spot in life, like Hagar did. I don't mean in a physical desert. I don't know, maybe you'll find yourself there one day. But I mean in a place where our, resor our resources are exhausted, our strength is sapped, our, our heart is heavy, and we're tempted to think, it's game over. There's no hope. I don't see any hope. I don't see any way out. But here's the thing. As long as there is a God in heaven, and that, that's going to be for eternity, there's always hope. It's never over. Verse 17, God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. God hears, and then it mentions the angel of God, the same as the angel of the Lord. He hears, and he calls out to Hagar from heaven. Some people think he was there on, on the, uh, with Hagar. He's, it says he calls out from heaven. I have to take it. That's where he's at. And he tells Hagar those words we so often read in the Bible that we love. Do not fear. Says that again and again. God says that again and again in the scripture. Why does he say that so many times? It's because we, we, if we trust him, we don't have to fear. There's many fears that come our way in life. We don't have to hold on to those fears if we're trusting God. This tells us that not only was Hagar grieved, but she's also afraid. She didn't have to be because it says God has heard the voice of the lad. The text doesn't say he made any noise. It doesn't say he said anything at all. But God hears his groaning in the desert, even if Hagar doesn't. God's in heaven. Hagar's much closer. She doesn't hear anything. But God does. He hears the, the slightest whimper that somebody makes. He even hears the groanings that are within us, even if no noise was emitted. Now, he hears, it says. What's interesting about this, another play on word, words. The name Ishmael means God hears. And God hears Ishmael suffering in the, in the desert shrub. Not only does, has he heard, but look at, the, look at verse 17. Not only has he heard the voice of the lad, it says, verse 17 says, he heard the voice of the lad, what? Where he is. Right where he was in the desert. Where was he? He's in the desert, wandering around, lost. No one knows where he is except for God alone. Nobody knows where he is. And he heard him in that place where he was, that desolate place, that place that only God could hear and see him weeping. Isn't that a comforting verse, if you think about it? You say, no one knows what I'm going through tonight. No one knows my circumstances. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody can relate to my situation. It's bleak. It's depressing. And I feel hopeless. No one knows, and you might be, and you're probably right. Maybe you're right. No one does know, except there is one who does know, and that's God. He knows. 
I want you to know that he knows all about you. He knows all about your location, your geography, uh, your situation spiritually. He knows where you are right now in life. He knows this. He understands. He loves you. He cares for you. That's the story throughout the Bible. It's the story of, of, of Ishmael here. Verse 18, the Lord says, Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. The Lord renews his promise, again, of a great nation. To be honest, uh, if you think about this for a minute, there, needed, there never needed to be one moment of worry. Why? Because back in verse 13, before they took off to the desert, God had already said, Ishmael is going to be a great nation. He's going to be a great nation, which means he's not going to die anytime soon. So why did they doubt? Again, it's about believing and trusting in God's promise. They could have done that all along, as we can all along. We can, in our difficult circumstances, we can trust God all along. If we, if we do that, instead of giving in to fear and doubt and all that, so God reveals, hey, there's a well nearby. You know, that well was there all the time. But now God reveals to her there's a well over here, and he's able to be rehydrated. So the Lord meets the need of the moment. But that's not all. Look at verse 20, 20 and 21. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. We, we tend to think God had absolutely nothing to do with Ishmael whatsoever. That's not true. We find here that God is going to make a great nation of him. God is with him, as a matter of fact, as he grew into manhood. I don't know that we should take it any further than that. That's what it says there. It's amazing that God was with him as he grew up, as he got into manhood and went on. Ishmael made his home in the wilderness. And if that's where your home was going to be made, you better become really skillful at the bow and arrow. Because killing wild game in that kind of environment meant you had to have skill. It was a practical necessity. And also, it, was, it could be used as a weapon against enemies. You better learn to do it. He did learn to do it. And he lived in a place called Paran, which is located between the southern border of Cana, Canaan and north of Sinai. That's near Egypt, by the way. In verse 21, his mother sees to it that she gets a wife from Egypt. Remember back in verse 9? It's, she's called Hagar the what? The Egyptian. So she has to, him marry an Egyptian. So here's Ishmael. Think about this. Here's Ishmael, the one who mocked Isaac, maybe several times. The one who was driven out by Sarah. He marries an Egyptian, which is not God's plan. And he lives outside of society. And Ishmael, Ishmael's descendants are going to be the, become the enemy of Israel. That's what they're going to become, the enemy of Israel. And God, knowing all this, exercises his pity on the mother and the son. And as I was studying for this, the Words to another hymn came into my mind. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Does anybody re remember that? I thought of that. I thought, what? It just came into my mind. I thought, where is that from? And I realized, oh, it's from the At the Cross, the hymn called At the Cross. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Only the Lord could show such pity on people. Nobody else could. Even people who would become the enemies of Israel. Even those who would oppose the work of Christ. Think about that. God showed pity on this person. The Lord is at work, was at work in the lives of the people in Genesis 21. First of all, through the fulfillment of his promise. Secondly, through the confirmation of his choice. 
And thirdly, through the exercise of his pity. And guess what? The Lord is still at work today. Well, that's the Old Testament. Mark, that's Genesis, and that's in the New Testament. Mike's talking about Titus and the great work they did on the island of Crete and planting churches and all that and establishing elders. That's back in the Bible days, but I'm telling you it's today also. God's still at work today. We just need to believe him. That's the whole message of this chapter. We need to trust him by faith to do his work in our lives. He has a work for us to do. He has something for us to do. So be encouraged and keep seeking him and keep trusting his word. That tonight is where your hope is found. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're grateful for your word and how we're strengthened. Like Mike said this morning, we go to these services. Our faith is strengthened because we're hearing the scriptures taught. Pray you'll strengthen our faith tonight. We pray we'll trust you. Help us not to doubt. Help us not to fear. Help us not to worry. These are all things that can be avoided if we'll only look to you, if we'll only saturate our hearts and mind in the word of God, if we'll only trust and depend upon you 100% all the time. God, help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen.